Hey everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And I'm Natalie Latovsky. And happy Halloween 2022. Woo! So every year we've come up with this pattern where we do a special Halloween episode where we do three movies and we make it a triple feature of some kind of theme or vague connection. And the first time we did it, you came up with the really cool idea of let's pick movies based on the three masks from Halloween 3. Mm-hmm. And then last year, we just decided to do it with let's do three hauntings and did both versions of the haunting and then also threw in Legend of Hell House and did that. So this year, and this was also your idea. We really took this very seriously. <laughs> we kind of like workshopped a whole lot of things for this because the thing is we watch horror movies year round. Like, yeah. There's a lot of people who make their lists of here's the great movies you can put on to get in the spirit for Halloween season. We look at them. We're like, we watched that last week. Like, that's what we do. I know. Usually what happens around Halloween is we just kind of tend to watch all the stuff that we like the most again. Mm-hmm. Again. Like, I figure tomorrow, we're recording this on the 30th. I'm hoping to actually get this posted later today so that all of you will have this on the night, you know, the eve, Halloween eve, and then on Halloween. I hate missing that. But it also means that tomorrow is Halloween, and we'll probably be sitting here all day, like, putting on stuff like House on Haunted Hill and Coraline, I suppose. We'll... Yeah, Coraline's kind of my Halloween Coraline. tradition. I was already planning that I want to make sure I put on Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman at some point. So, I mean, like, it's stuff that, for us, we also see a lot. A lot. Yeah, we watched Coraline a couple weeks ago. <laughs> we'll watch it yeah, again. but still. But, um... Oh, we gotta watch Great Pumpkin from DVD. Thank you, Apple. Boo. <laughs> so in any case, we uh, we went through a couple ideas. We thought about thematic stuff like we have we did last year, haunted things. We thought, do we do ones with ghosts? Do we do ones that take place on Halloween? We also have been in a real werewolf mode this year where we did just last episode. We did Werewolf by Night and the Beast Must Die. And that led us into more werewolf movies which we were originally going to do. That's another thing I wanted to mention. Is we said we were going to do a bunch of episodes for October. Well, you know, we're still living in an endless March 2020 in many ways. So it didn't quite work out. But we'll save a couple of the ones we had planned to do for the episode after this. So we've been plowing through a lot of werewolf stuff. But we didn't mm. want to carry that through with the Halloween episode. Yeah. We want to do something different. So we finally came around to this idea that we were going to pick out some of the attendees of the Graveyard Smash in the Monster Mash and choose movies that correlated to some of the guests. So we ran through the lyrics. Although I had planned a possibility of doing it, I think I will not be including any clips in here because particularly lately I feel like you can do almost anything and nobody's paying attention to our show anyway, but when you put music in, you start getting more attention for takedowns and all kind of stuff. So You've heard the Monster Mash You before. know what the Monster Mash sounds like. But we went through the, the lyrics and we wound up zeroing in on a few things. One is Count Dracula and vampires. Mm-hmm. So we thought, okay, vampires. And one of the things that came up right away that I've just kind of become more aware of in recent years where we've been watching stuff, but I never thought I was particularly averse to it, but it seems I don't care for vampire stuff really all that much. And my interest in it or appreciation for it tends to be limited to really classic stuff or like Hammer movies. And that's about it. I I find most other vampire stuff, and I again, I'm coming to this now, I'm finding that I find most of it tedious or depressing or just not of any interest. What we do in the shadows is another great example, one that's wonderful because right. they found a way to make it funny. And we also almost considered doing that because we haven't like officially talked about it on the show yet. We talk about it a lot in our own lives but, and quote well, it on the regular. But we'll get to it because we watch it a lot. You, your idea was to find one that was like, well, maybe a little off to one side of mm-hmm. the, the standard mythology, and you suggested one for this particular episode. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess in this whole exercise, realized I do love vampire stories a lot more than you do. And it's interesting, I don't know if it's because at a certain point there were a lot of authors skewing 
like vampire writing towards women more or if it's just the slight age gap that we have and me having my formative years in the like very early 90s where there was like a real resurgence of vampire content coming out when I was like that magic age where you start really keying into things like 10 11 years old and I also the first like actual series of books that I ever read as a series not the first books I read but the first series I ever read was Christopher Pike's The Last Vampire series um which were always like in the YA section which when I was a kid was in the children's section but The Last Vampire that is not a series of books for children there is a lot of sex and violence in those books um but whatever I read them when I was like 10 and they really had quite an impact on like my choices going forward so I have this whole catalog of vampire movies in my head and I was scrolling through the list and I was like that's too dark that's too dark that'll be depressing and you like start going through the Rolodex and then I landed on Byzantium in my mind and I thought this is perfect this is a vampire story that is unconventional and yet conventional at the same time it has some of the hallmarks that we know of like the classic idea of what constitutes a vampire but then it also has a lot of elements that are not I mean it it kind of creates a new mythology and that's something that I really love in vampire stories when you can create this new mythology it's new idea for a concept that everybody thinks is old hat so we went with Byzantium from 2012 and then the next step was we were zeroing in some other stuff we discounted Frankenstein's monster as a possibility and obviously Wolfman we were dealing with a lot of werewolf stuff so there's no need to focus on that but of course naturally one of my greatest most traditional strengths is ghouls and zombies so we thought well let's find something but also let's try to find something a we haven't watched a lot and that um be a little different and for this one it was one that I saw pop up on Shutter that's not that often in circulation and that I really have always wanted to see and hadn't and part of it comes from like a slightly, not quite personal, but semi-personal uh, background story. In that when I was doing that first zombie book with my friend Andy, Zombie Mania, Tom Eberhardt, the creator of Night of the Comet, was one of the few filmmakers that we were able to actually get a hold of. Who not only was so wonderful with talking to us and getting on the phone and also doing email, but also sending us a packet of never-before-published uh, black and white stills from Night of the Comet. And like he was so happy to talk. I think he kind of segued into doing mostly documentaries in his career. And he he always seemed like kind of like a semi-sad guy to me. Like he wanted to do better stuff and never got anywhere and and still has crafted cult movies that we love. And those never-before-seen photos that you talk about were so never-before-seen that like Kelly Maroney hadn't seen oh, them. Oh, yeah, that's and right. And she asked you to send them to her a couple years ago. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. That was so cool. Yeah, I th- what, I tweeted or something at yeah, some point? Yeah, you tweeted something out, and she was like, I've never seen this before. Like, Do you want the files? Yeah, and I was like, yeah, you can have them. And because she she always wants to, like, have new stuff she can autograph. So she, she said, what do you want? And I said, oh, I don't care. You can have them. They're from Tom, ultimately, so you should have them. Right. So, yeah, I sent her. I forgot about that. Yeah, that was really nice. So so he was cool. And, and I remember I all my files from that book, some of them are easy to find, some of them aren't. But I remember when we talked to him, he had told us about the movie he had done just before Night of the Comet, which also technically had zombies in it, called Soul Survivor. But it didn't do very well, and it kind of became obscure. And... I always wanted to go back and find that and see it. And uh, there was a long period of time where I didn't even see it ever pop up anywhere. And then here it is in Shudder. And I was like, we're going to watch Soul Survivor. Because I also knew very little about it. But I knew that in recent years, people have started to credit it with its potential influence on a number of far more popular 
horror movies, and uh, it certainly seems to to be the case. So that covered our zombie slot. So we had a vampire movie, a zombie movie, and then we were looking through all the Monster Mash lyrics, and we couldn't think of what the other thing was. And then we thought, what if we just cover everything? And the choice was obvious because there was Mad Monster Party from 1967. I think you mean Mad Monster Party? Or or Party? Mad Monster Party? Um, <laughs> which we've learned from Ben Mankiewicz. is tough to say. One of Rankin and Bass's first feature-length productions, shortly after they had done Rudolph, but before they really kicked into high gear with their 70s run of holiday specials and all the stuff that most of us my age anyway grew up with and remember well and this is one of those really really weird things where i love rankin and bass stuff every year we watch the christmas stuff like and you know the christmas part means nothing to me but the christmas specials are a part of my childhood and i love those shows and i love rankin and bass and also i love a lot of the stuff they did beyond that like i never became a huge last unicorn fan but i appreciate it I loved the heck out of that when yeah. I was a kid. Uh, and then I also, it was many years later that I realized the role they had in doing a lot of live action stuff that I also grew up with. They had teamed with their Japanese partners and did King Kong Escapes, which was one of the great uh, cheesy kaiju movies. And they also did The Last Dinosaur with the really terrible uh, people in dinosaur suits that ran on network in the 70s. And I loved that. So they're a huge part of the childhood of all of us of a certain age. And yet, despite that, and despite my love of horror and monsters and classic Universal and Boris Karloff, I had never seen Mad Monster Party. I knew of it. I'd seen stills from it. I may have even seen a clip, but I've never seen it. And I thought, this was the time we're going to watch Mad Monster Party. And the experience was quite odd, which we'll talk about. <laughs> An experience. That's the yeah. way to describe it. So that is our Halloween triple feature, and we're going to jump right in with our first film, Byzantium. And the first thing I will say is, having worked hard to find a vampire movie for us that you thought might be interesting or different than the usual, I was almost immediately impressed with this film, and I thought it was just absolutely beautiful. It was a brilliant piece of work. And I think my, my immediate reaction when the credits were rolling was, I could easily see this becoming a series. But I also feel like this is one of those cases where we as fans of something think that, and usually that's probably a bad idea. Right. But there is so much, like you said in the initial intro, built up in this to suggest a whole other mythology and world and universe of vampire history that is unlike almost anything that's ever been done anywhere else that I could easily see this being adapted into like a typical streaming show where you do eight to ten episodes of a first season that's this, redone, and then start weaving in flashbacks to the history of the vampire mythos and all that. And I'd, I want to write it, I want to see it, but I also know that this is a terrible idea, but I will not be surprised when the day comes where somebody says Neil Jordan's made a deal to put Byzantium on Netflix or something, because that... It's a it's perfect. And that. if you don't know us well enough to hear him say, I think this movie should be a series is a heck of a thing, because both of us constantly when we're looking for something to watch, will read a synopsis and say, oh, that sounds interesting. Click through and see that it's a season of a TV show instead of a movie and go, oh, never mind. Yeah, because we don't want to get involved in a series, especially when so many things now They'll try it out. They'll throw a season out there. They'll end it on a cliffhanger. It'll get canceled. And like, we just don't want to go down that road. So for you to say you loved the mythology so much that you want to see it keep going is is quite something. I really would want to see more of this. But also the, the thing is, though, it, it wouldn't work out because I'd kind of want to see more of Saoirse Ronan. As yeah, well. who's and, already aged out of the role. Which you don't need, but but also you're very limited because of the way the vampirism works in this. There aren't a lot of other people you can go to necessarily, and certainly not a lot of other women. Right. So we should lay in a little bit, although one of the things you said before we started recording is you don't want to do our usual thing. You don't do full spoilers for this because we loved it so much. We want to make sure we can recommend people who haven't seen it watch it. I feel like this is one of those movies that 
flew under the radar a bit. I feel like it didn't get as much attention as it should have it when also, it came out. It also works out nicely because we're doing this like a 10th anniversary tribute to Byzantium. This yeah. is a, This is a really overlooked gem. It was Neil Jordan who did The Crying Game, who did Interview with a Vampire many years before this, and who apparently in interviews talked about being a little gun shy about doing this movie because he felt like people would think he's going back to the well on vampires, but he really created something very different. Although, as you point out with that certain kind of more almost literary melancholy that Rice's stuff has. Yeah. I mean, this feels like an adaptation of a novel. Yeah. And yet it's based on a play Myra Buffini, who wrote a vampire story, and she, if I remember right, actually adapted the screenplay herself from her own play, I think. Mm. So it's also written from, it's very much what, written from women's perspective, but directed by a man. I won't tell you anything that you don't know within like the first five minutes, really. Yeah. But, but we will not tell you, as atypical for us, we won't go through every beat and we won't tell you the ending because I really feel like I'd like people to see this. Mm-hmm. and get the full impact of it but one thing we will say so start off is you're introduced to two female vampires played by Saoirse Ronan and Gemma Arterton although they seem to be masquerading most often as sisters because that probably works best for the modern world they are in fact a mother and daughter that go back to what does it look it's like the 1700s it looks like we're in like tri-corner hat period it's uh, <laughs> Well, I like actually, that that's how we describe historical eras. We're in the tri-corner hat era. I don't era. know. I don't know his. Actually, I it think says it's here, early 1800s. It's early 1800s. Yeah. It says in the write-up, uh, Eleanor was born in 1804. So Eleanor yeah. is Ronan, and Clara is Gemma Arterton's character. She's Eleanor's mother. In the horrible life of squalor that, that she lives in the 1800s, she's basically taken as a young girl uh, into a brothel and then eventually has Eleanor... Uh, manages to save her by having her eventually in an orphanage, but then reclaims her when she's become a vampire already at one point. And now, you know, we get a little bit... Also, nice, nice structure. There's flashbacks to fill in the history a bit, but most of it takes place in the present, in the 2010s, as they're living in the seaside town and trying to make their way. There's some very... I wouldn't say predictable, but very common beats that come up, but that are handled with such finesse and so well, like the fact that Sir Sharonin's character is like a couple centuries old, but she's still also very much a young girl. And when she meets a guy, there's this idea of, well, wouldn't it be nice if I could have a relationship with somebody, mm-hmm. but you really can't. But he's also damaged in his own way. So there's almost the implication there like, well, he's a good candidate because he's not great either he's got his own issues and they and they kind of connect and her mother is very leery about letting anybody into their secrets but in the meantime they're also being pursued by male vampires who apparently have a very long-standing brotherhood and one of the main themes that comes up throughout this movie is the fact is the fact that vampirism very much seems to be (laughs) dominated by men as if that's unique at all in the world (laughs) And they, as two women who are apparently as unique as possible, and there may be no other women we know of that are vampires, right? have been targeted for capture and probably elimination because they, they basically go against the rules of the Brotherhood. We get, we get tantalizing clues about the way vampirism works in this world, and it's not what you think. Although some of the things in this movie are comfortably familiar, like the need for an invitation or the need to feed on human blood, there are no fangs. They have a thumbnail that grows. Mm-hmm. That's like a nice little thing that's actually physical, like there, but it's not, there's no fangs. There's a lot of things missing. They also, the thing that really threw me immediately is there's absolutely no concern whatsoever about daylight. None. They're totally functional. Like normal human beings, it's just what they need for sustenance. But otherwise, they don't really have much in the way of physical limitations. Mm-mm. How often do you feed? I'd rather not talk about it. Oh, thank you. That's the distasteful part of being an immortal, isn't it? If you don't believe a word I say, why this pretense? Helena, how can you be two centuries old by 
By what miracle of science? You see, that's the tricky thing. Because it's only over time that I can prove it. 30, maybe 40 years from now, when you're pruning roses from your wheelchair, I'll stroll by your garden gate and say, Hello, Morag. And nothing will have changed. I am 16 forever. And you'll realize this. And it will hurt your heart. And I'll say, May peace be with you. And I'll help you with the pain. Why don't you do it now? I'm not strong. You could overpower me. You're not ready. And then you start to glean a little bit about this political system that the vampires that are out there appear to have built over the years. But I think the thing I found most intriguing, and I'll, I'll hold off on mentioning a lot of details, mm. but I think one of the things I found most intriguing about this is that in this world, vampirism cannot really be spread by one vampire biting another person or feeding on another person. It literally has to involve a very specific ritual and a specific geographic place that you must be at in order to become a vampire, which means the total number of vampires in the world would have to be very, very small because there's no way this can spread right. without someone going to this distant location. And it's so fascinating. Like, how did that come to be? And what is that? And where does this power come from? We never find out. Mm -mm. But it feels... And I love that about it. I love yeah, that they don't feel the good. need... To like in giving you the mythology, they don't feel the need to give you the genesis of it. It's just that it is. You're just told that it is, and you're along for the ride on it. Season two or three of the streaming series oh, would no. have the flashbacks to the first vampire. And that's why we don't need the streaming series. I know, series. but I would still, there's a part of my head that's still like, hmm, I wonder what that would be. Who's the first one? Uh, I mean, the thing is, people have done that. Like, people have done versions of Dracula where you find out he was, like, like denied by God or something. You know, they, right. They, and this does feel very religious. Aspects of this feel like there's a sort of nondescript religious force at work or spiritual force. Well, one thing I'll say is that just based on the style of the story, the characters, and also the mythology, it creates... A whole bunch of different metaphors and allegories that are taking place simultaneously in the plot. So you're looking at the effects of a patriarchal society. You're also looking at class structure and the effects of like a gentry feeling superior to a poor class and taking advantage of them. But you're also looking at sort of uh, the dangers of fanatical devotion to some kind of organized religion or some kind of society that you've formed, which is something that you see a lot that comes up in stories across all genres. Like you could say the John Wick stories look into that kind of thing. The Mandalorian has looked into that as sort of this fanatical devotion. I would say that a lot of this movie feels particularly the stuff about patriarchy and the way the vampires are all men and treat the idea of the existence of female vampires as an affront. And and the one line Gemma Arterton's character has of Clara where she says, I forget exactly the wording, but she says something like about her part of her mission is to curb the power of men. And she says that to one of them and they look at her like she's a monster. <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> a vampire looking at another vampire yeah. like she's a monster. And and I feel like this movie was like even like ten years ahead of its time. Like that maybe this would hit even more now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's also beautiful in a way that like sometimes I feel like if a movie and, and I I don't wanna I don't wanna um muddle this with the too much conversation about stuff we don't like but a lot of a lot of a24 stuff keeps coming up over and over again in conversations i have with other people 
And it's like that. They get a, a lot of press. Yeah. And I mean, that's a case of a lot of movies that do the windswept or the stark or the, you know, the beauty and darkness and, and, and uh, uh, harsh landscapes, you know, but there's no substance there. This one has all that that normally might bother me because, oh, we're on a beach and that's another melancholy. But it, but the trappings of that here are there to serve a very well-crafted story with wonderful characters and everything. And that's another thing. This is a story that actually has a beginning, middle, and end. It does. And actually is a very satisfying journey that you take with these characters and doesn't feel at the end like you've been left with nothing. Which too often I feel this kind of movie, based on the logline and the way it looks in a trailer, you think, oh, I don't know about this. And instead, uh, I, I think it's very impressive. And uh, it lingered with me after we watched in a good way, where I'm thinking there's some beautiful stuff. One of my favorite scenes is the it's very quiet stuff in this, like the scene where she's playing the piano for the old people. Yeah, she just walks in and starts playing a piano because she sees it and thinks, I want to play a piano. And I like that look where, like, I think it's where she meets the young guy the first mm-hmm. time because he's working there. But there's that thing that happens sometimes where people do that and you think, oh, it's like, do we need security? Is this someone who's like a vagrant who's going to... But she's playing the piano and she's obviously very talented. Of course, you know, a couple centuries of practice helped. Mm-hmm. But everybody loves her playing. And it's just uh, the way she connects with victims, the way she has this moral code that she has created, which I won't go into too much detail about, but she has a very specific moral code that allows her basically to sleep at night. Assuming they sleep, we don't really know 100% You see them going to bed at some point, Um, so I feel like they do. Yeah, and then as we went along too, one of the things I loved about the movie was, being the kind of movie it is, it was filled with a lot of UK actors that were familiar from other things. If you remember the guy who's the 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 sleazy little uh head of the east india company in the pirates of the caribbean movies he turns up and this is a teacher and one of the main vampires who's also a very compelling character we were looking at him and it's like why does he look familiar and then it turns out well he's our mr darcy from pride and prejudice and zombies so he has a history of well i mean that would be after this i guess but it would be yeah it's a great cast johnny lee miller playing very like off-brand for him Wow, yeah, he's a really awful person. (laughs) (laughs) They really do him up with some, like, makeup to just make him look all, like, mean and gross. I just realized there's one of our little threadbare thematic connections, too, with, like, um, British, like, rough British sailors talking about taking their boat to an island of evil. (laughs) We got that in two movies. I'm not sure what else to say. I I don't remember that I've seen some of them in much else, so... In a way, for me, that helped, too, because I was able to look at Sir Ronan and just kind of take her as Eleanor. Also, um, the actress playing the principal at her school oh, yeah. played um, Catherine of Aragon on The Tudors, if okay. you're a Tudors fan, which I am. Yeah, so it's really, really a good cast, but the atmosphere is great. The like, story's compelling. Like I said, it actually gets you to an ending. Mm-hmm. you feel satisfied like the like when i started this and said i'd like to see this as a series in no way did i say that meaning that i felt the experience of seeing the movie felt incomplete like i could walk away from these characters and never see them again and go that was a good storytelling experience right. i'm fine but i think what got me was that it was just such a unique and interesting way to, to demonstrate how vampires happen that mythology is so enticing because you don't know what the hell any of that is or why it's happening that way and surely there could be more done with it but again maybe it's best to leave it alone at this moment in time anyway and since we're recording this pretty close when we're going to post it byzantium is available for free to watch on tubi Uh, the commercials were not terribly intrusive so i i really highly recommend you give it a look. That's the only place we could find it streaming at the moment, but it does tend to move around. It's usually in circulation somewhere. I feel like I'm about to be caught. Something beyond life is watching her, stalking her, and now 
is coming together. Next up is Soul Survivor, which is the movie, as I mentioned earlier, uh, done by writer-director Tom Eberhardt, who many of us know best from Night of the Comet. And it's an interesting backstory to this, too. As I, as I was saying, he always struck me as kind of a guy who felt like he never quite got his due, and he created at least one movie for sure that will stand the test of time as a great cult classic. And I thought Soul Survivor might be another one that just hadn't been noticed, but I don't think so. I, it, it's not. It's certainly not as good as Night of the Comet, and it, it's it's got a lot of interesting stuff in it. We'll talk about it, but I don't think it's certainly not as revisitable a film mm. as Night of the Comet. It, it lacks a certain sense of fun that Night of the Comet has, and that's fine because that's not what this movie's about. In a sense, I kind of feel the same way about soul survivor as they did about messiah of evil they're very similar that's right it's that's... like a really interesting concept yes. and a very cool idea very artful shots it's they, beautifully filmed they both have shots that are like in that like downtown main street with the department store mannequins and stuff they have a lot of the same there's also look. some interesting angles and foreground background work and like there's so much stuff in soul survivor where you could take a single frame and say this is like a master class in how to frame a shot it also as we said almost immediately it's a movie made in the early 80s and it feels like he shot it 10 years earlier mm -hmm. so it does feel like messiah of evil it's 70s yeah it's not though but it feels like it yeah so it's like it's a movie that is a mood and i think that's probably what's gonna make it not quite so revisitable but it doesn't mean it wasn't worth watching like there are sometimes we'll watch something and we'll be like i don't know what people are talking about with this like why is this even here and that certainly is not how i would describe this experience i mean it was definitely you could see all of the intent in it so there's this woman who wrote uh made for tv mayhem amanda reyes i think it's reyes uh so forgive me if i got that mispronounced and uh, I've been following her on Facebook for a while now, too. She's been turning up and stuff more recently, too. I think she was in the Shutter 101 Scariest Moments at least a couple times, I Maybe. think. Um, one of her main things has been cataloging the rich history of the made-for-TV horror movies of the 70s and 80s and beyond, but, but particularly that like sort of golden era. And even on Facebook, she's been running a thing this year of uh, highlighting some scary moments specifically for made for tv movies and mm. she kind of crowdsourced a lot of us about a month ago and asked us what ours was and i was very delighted that yesterday she posted about gargoyle so she hit my choice in go in revisiting a lot of that stuff either in clips or actually watching them again soul survivor feels like it could have been a made for tv movie mm -hmm. with only a couple shots of gore that could easily be taken out there's one shot of like in it like a guy who's got his guts out after an airplane accident doesn't need to be in there it real because most of this movie so does not rely on any kind of gore. You could easily avoid all of that. And it's really a tone poem, and 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 you could kind of say the same thing about Night of the Comet. That's not really like a gory. That's true. Movie you in could a lot avoid. You could avoid the few bits or pieces that are yeah yeah. And so it has a TV movie feel. It feels like the seventies. It kind of led us to wonder, and I looked it up, and and I know Eberhard had talked about doing it before Night of the Comet, but it's. Kind of a curious backstory, and I don't really have the full details about it, but what's interesting is it came out in 84, so my initial thought was, wow, he shot this movie, and then he did Night of the Comet the same year, but when you look at the uh, copyright at the end of the actual movie, it says 82. So, presumably, what happened was, he filmed this movie in 82, it was on the shelf for a while somewhere until it got a distributor, and then it probably just kind of flipped out in 84. Right. When he was already... That's a technical term. Yeah, when he was already, like, working... Because the other thing about this movie is it has next to nobody that you will recognize from anything ever. It's one of these weird movies that feels like it dropped out of an alternate reality where no one in the movie is from anything. And it's not 100% true. I mean, some of these people turn up in a couple things, but our lead... Uh, Anita Skinner uh, did like one other movie with Melanie Mayron in the 70s, Girlfriends, which is considered like a, a, a landmark feminist film, but like has dropped off the face of the earth. And a lot of these people are just, I don't recognize any of them. Brink Stevens turns up for two seconds to take her clothes off, which again is also unnecessary. Very that whole scene doesn't need to be there. 
And and uh, in like a two second scene towards the end of the movie, I recognized one actor oh, who's know, actually performer Leon. Leon. And I was like, gosh, he looks familiar. And then I was like squinting. I've never seen him that young. So I've mm-hmm. never seen him in anything that young. But it's definitely not like packed with actors, which for a horror movie, both of us kind of love. I, I thought that was actually helped this because it makes that feeling even stronger that you're watching like a documentary rather than, the, right. you know, you're not recognizing anybody. You're not being pulled out of the narrative. Mm-hmm. But it, it's very slow. It's got a lot of foreboding atmosphere, but it also felt very uneventful. It has some nice ideas, but I will honestly say, I think it, it, it could be the kind of movie that you might appreciate and think, oh, I can leave that on and just let it be there. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't particularly great and certainly not up to the level of what he was already doing a couple years later with Night of the Comet. And I can see why this would be a cult movie for some people if they had seen it then. But I can also see that it's not really all that great. But what's more interesting about it is more what it appears to have been an inspiration for than what it actually is itself. Because this movie feels like a mix of things that we would later know under much more familiar names. And what's interesting about that is that we didn't really know anything about this going in except that it was Tom Eberhardt's movie and that you had spoken with him about it in the past. So we hadn't read up on it. And we came to a lot of realizations on our own watching it. Yeah, I'm very And then afterwards saw a whole bunch of headlines that mentioned (laughs) everything that we noticed when we were watching it. But it just goes to show how clear... That is. Also, like Shane Black, he appears to like setting his movies at Christmas because it's a Christmas movie. Another one, yeah. But yeah, when we were watching it, we were like, oh, so it's Final Destination and it follows. And then I discovered that back in September when Shudder put this on the service, they tweeted out, before Final Destination and it follows, there was Soul Survivor. (laughs) And I was like, all right, but I didn't see that, so okay. It's kind of great, though. We love... We really try to go into movies that we haven't seen before as uninformed as possible because it's really important, I think, to form your opinion about it based on your own experience. Like we've been through this where you've shown me classic Doctor Who episodes where Mm -hmm. you're trying to kind of show me, you know, some of the episodes over the years that people have felt like are the pinnacle like these are the episodes and oftentimes i'll watch it and i'll be like "Eh." and then you'll have another episode on i'll be like that was really fun and you're like people always say that's one of the worst episodes (laughs) and i'd be like i liked it and so it's like i think it's important not to really have the reference points or the opinions necessarily when you're going in yeah and i think that was kind of a delight for this one because we really We got not that far into it, and there was this moment where we both were, like, looking at each other and saying, does this feel like it follows? It kind of feels like it follows. And that one kind of hit us. Like, the Final Destination, we kind of knew going in. So, like, basically, Soul Survivor. Okay. We have... Yeah, we should give you the plot. Young woman is, like, a commercial producer. She's going to be flying out to something, and the actress that she's working with is apparently a washed-up old beach movie actress who also is a psychic. Why not? Feels that this producer shouldn't get on the plane. Then it turns out that everybody dies on the plane, except her. She's the sole survivor, hence our title. And then something unnameable, unseeable starts stalking her. Well, actually not unseeable, because what starts to happen is she starts to see very creepy people, all different kinds of people, a young girl, a guy, standing across the street, standing on a dock, looking at her. And what starts to become clear is that the recently dead are being reanimated as zombies to stalk her and presumably to kill her to rectify the error of her being the sole survivor. And if that sounds to most of you like a very good approximation of how Final Destination movies usually go, except for Sans the Zombies... Uh, then you can see why everybody says Soul Survivor was apparently a precursor. We don't have a lot of evidence or, or found it 
before doing this to find if anybody involved said, oh, yes, we saw Soul Survivor and we thought that's what we're going to do. And also the It Follows guy, his name escapes me, has actually been accused online often of having stolen a lot of things from Soul Survivor. I've only now found out. Right. But has never actually gone on the record, as far as I can tell, of saying yes or no. And that's apparently annoyed fans of this. But it seems very obvious there are huge chunks of this atmospherically, stylistically, and thematically that are obviously Final Destination, are very clearly it follows. And as many people also point out, this is essentially a direct remake of Carnival of Souls, Mm -hmm. in which she has the car accident and ghouls are pursuing her to collect her. And that's really what this is, uh, with a few other little touches. It's fascinating how many elements are in here. There's also a recurring thing where anytime something bad is going to happen, you start getting this warbling, humming musical effect. Years ago in the Paranormal Activity movies, where the top of the game every year in, in, in theaters in Halloween, everybody was praising one of its particular gimmicks, which was whenever the movie would cut to the bedroom shot, and you started hearing the hum rising, you knew, okay, now we're going to see something. And that became a common rhythm in the Paranormal Activity movies. And then I'm watching this and thinking, yeah, but Tom Eberhardt did that in Soul Survivor. So there's a lot of stuff in this that feels like it either directly or indirectly led to a lot of the things we've appreciated about a lot of modern horror Mm -hmm. in the 2000s. There were at least two scenes, for sure, that I can think of off the top of my head that are recreated, like, shot for shot in It Follows. Like, there's one in a park and there's one in a restaurant. And both of them just feel like they're exact. it's exactly the same thing. And that, to me, when they got we got to the restaurant scene... That's when I was like, can you pause this for a second? And I was like, is this making you think of It Follows? And you were like, yeah, it is. And I felt like there's no way that he didn't see that and like the way it was framed. Because like I said at the start, this movie is beautifully shot. There are some amazing shots in this film. in the park, too. Because one of the things about It Follows that really throws you off is that thing where like everybody's living their lives and everything's normal. But there's that one person standing still. Yeah. That's creepy. And that's this. That's this. And you mentioned also, as far as this having an inspiration, you said there were some elements of this that were reminding you of uh, Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, too. Yeah, just a little bit. Yeah. Because there's that whole idea also of, like, the zombies creating other zombies so that they have backup. Yeah. (laughs) Like, the zombies are creating more dead bodies so that they can be reanimated, so that there are more people to try to collect the person. Which, by the way, means if you follow the logic of the zombies in this, who appear to be used as, let's just say, they they appear to be being used as like agents of death or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like know, emissaries in some way. Um, but... It is very much adhering to like the early Romero idea of it's the not only the unburied dead, but really only the recently dead. Like right. they're, and they're they're also trying to get closer and closer to dead people around her own personal circle. Right. It starts with strangers. But actually now I didn't even think about the fact like as you're watching the movie, it starts spiraling closer and closer to the dead are becoming the people that she knows personally mm-hmm. as they're killed and turned against her. And it really is um, a pretty nice claustrophobic structure of, like, things are closing in on her. Right. And, and you know, we don't necessarily do full spoilers for this either, but I think you get the impression things are not going to go well in this movie. <laughs> you kind of know that going in. That's kind of the final destination thing, too. The clock's ticking on anybody that mm-hmm. thinks they got away. And there's also an EC Comics quality to this one, too, that also goes back to Manchester Morgan those kind of movies so it's it's good atmosphere to it i think it's definitely worth a watch if you've never seen it we also have a very dashing guy as the male lead kurt johnson who very sadly died only a couple years after this movie was released very young there's our tragedy for this episode i don't have much details about that but i do i do remember there was one point where he's a doctor who was who was 
uh, taking care of her after the, the plane crash. And then they start a relationship. But also, he starts, like, investigating things, at which point you came out with Dr. Detective, Attorney at Law. <laughs> and then you added, and he's after your heart. <laughs> so there would have been the spin-off show for this one. That would have been the Hallmark movie mm-hmm. that spun out of this. She's recovering from a plane crash, and she's gone home to, I don't know, like, you know, Daisyville, Alabama. It's always some kind of little place. It's always got to have a town square with a gazebo. The town probably would have been called something like Memory. Yeah, right, right. Or like, you know, Heartbreak, Oklahoma or something. Memory, Arkansas. And then she's a really high-powered investor for Goldman Sachs and makes a ton of money. But what well, she's, she really, al- she's already a TV commercial yeah, producer. But what she really wants to do is go back home to Arkansas and make chocolate candies that look like little elves. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the way... I don't know. So that, that'll be for our Hallmark And Christmas then everybody's episode. murdered or something. Yeah, and then Santa Claus shows up. Or an old man who looks like Santa. But he's not really Santa. But then at the end of the movie, he turns to us and winks. And we know that it's really Santa Claus. The night is still young. Enjoy yourselves. Have a frightful time, and I shall see you all tomorrow. Well, I leave you now in the capable hands of little Tibia and the Fibia. Finally, for our Halloween triple feature mashup, it's one of the Rankin and Bass productions I never saw when I was a kid. And I'd never seen it either. And I feel very, very genuinely sad and disappointed that I didn't. Because I think that's why I don't like it. Uh, and it's Mad Monster Party. So I've been looking forward to seeing this thing for a long time. Could never figure out why I never saw it. It seemed perfect for me. And it's fascinating. when you And, and not only that, like one of the things we talked about... Oh, okay. So basic setup is it <laughs> Order actually, of it actually has Boris Karloff in it and then weirdly also Phyllis Diller and then literally everybody else is played by just about one guy and uh, they bring in a, a New Zealand singer, uh, was it Gail Garnett, to play uh, Francesca, mm-hmm. the main female lead in it. Basically, uh, it's also timely for us because this, like all these, Rankin and Bass and this one's directed by Jules Bass and Jules Bass literally just died. Arthur Rankin died years ago, but Bass has died. And so this was co-written by Harvey Kurtzman, one of the creators of Mad, when it was a comic before it became Mad Magazine. So, And it has his distinctive touch everywhere. And as we saw in the behind-the-scenes stuff, but it's not that hard to see. If you're familiar with it, it also has character designs by Jack Davis from uh, all those old magazines. And so the look of it, the production value, everything is what you come to expect from Rankin and Bass. The the uh, puppet-sized castle and, and jungle sets and everything. Everything looks amazing. It's beautiful, beautiful work. The doll and, and character designs are fantastic. And it features the... If you're a Rankin and Bass fan or you grew up with any specials, it features all the same body language and style that permeates all of them. Like, there's certain things that if you're a Rankin and Bass fan, you know it immediately. Like... Characters that are frustrated will always shake their little hands in a certain way, and they do that in this. For some reason, Rankin and Bass always thought sneezing was funny, and there's a character that keeps sneezing, and, and when I saw that, I thought, oh, there's like at least five other Rankin and Bass specials where the character <laughs> keeps sneezing. And the 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 character designs themselves are also very clearly in the moment between Rudolph and the 70s specials, because Rudolph has that little beady-eyed, black-eyed design that they then moved away from in the later specials with bigger eyes, but this one has the little tiny eyes, so it looks very much like it fits right after Rudolph. Which makes sense, because it is right after Rudolph. Yeah, and the basic structure is Boris Karloff is playing Baron von Frankenstein. It is, if I remember correctly, the last time he ever did any uh, production involving Frankenstein or his Mm. history in, in the classic monster. And he's invited all of the monsters, many of whom have to be uh, very carefully renamed so as not to step on Universal, but are all very obviously all the classic monsters, to celebrate his final big uh, horrible creation of evil and to announce his retirement and handing everything over to his nephew, 
who uh, is done with the voice of uh, Jimmy Stewart-esque voice, who is Felix Flanken, your standard, almost like Maxwell Smart, nebbishy 60s character who clearly only succeeds because he's such an idiot that he can't see the truth. And He's uh, almost like, what if Mr. Bean were actually endearing? Yeah, right, right, which is <laughs> literally impossible. And Francesca is the mysterious uh, but very attractive redhead who lives on the island with Frankenstein, appears to have some connection to him, although what that is we don't know until the end, but you'll figure it out. At first, she's very resentful of Felix being potentially uh, named as the successor, but that changes before the end of the movie. Like, really quickly, too. And, uh, and there are some musical numbers, as you'd expect from Rankin and Bass. Not nearly as many as I expected, but mm -hmm. a few, including one that's the showstopper of the movie, which is a mummy song featuring the Beatles as skeletons. <laughs> is it it's Tibia and the Fibulas? I Tibia and the Fibulas. Clearly that, the best characters in this film. They were great. The mop-top skeletons. And, uh, and I mean, we'll talk about some other stuff, but ultimately what both, I won't say shocked me, but like unhappily surprised me is how little I enjoyed it. I didn't think it was all that funny. I think a lot of the humor fell really flat. There was an entire sequence about food and cooking that was tedious that we found out after was added after the fact to pad out the movie, which certainly felt like it, it. very much felt like, and, it. uh, you know, say what you will about Phil, Phil Stiller is a comic legend. Yes, but that doesn't mean I have to seek her out or her material. So she is, she's Phil Stiller. All she cackles her way through the film. So if that works for you, that's fine. It is also very slow. It's a 95-minute movie that definitely should only have been 45, 50 minutes or like an hour TV special. There's no excuse for this being this long. And it also had some incredibly disquieting aspects of sexual assault and harassment in this that felt so obvious yeah. and so offensive that I started to actually run back in my head, am I misremembering things in other Rankin and Bass specials that happen? And I don't really remember much. We won't get into Santa Claus's Come to Town, but <laughs> but there's like, I don't know, it just seems so over the top and so wrong. And I feel really bad, ultimately. I'll just finish this thought with this, which is that I know for certain, if I'd seen this when I was little, when I was watching all the Rankin and Bass stuff, I'd probably be watching this all the time and still seeing it today because it has all the monsters I love and the designs that I love and the Rankin and Bass characters. But having not seen it then, I see it as a very largely unfunny, tedious experience that does not do any of these characters any justice. And I am completely on the outside looking in. And it makes me a little sad about that. But that's life. I think what drives me the craziest about the through line of sexual harassment in this is that it's actually like the only coherent plot point that like is consistent throughout because this is basically like a series of vignettes where you're like introduced to characters and then they disappear for half an hour and then suddenly they're back again and you don't really understand who they are or what they're doing. Even some of the monsters, it's kind of not clear what it's all about with them and yet the one consistent thing is that this woman just keeps getting harassed by everyone touched unwantedly ogled like propositioned eventually like quite literally physically assaulted and it's like why like why and then in what i think is one is the most distasteful moment of the whole thing the turning point of the romantic relationship Ugh. in this the moment where felix like wins her over and the two of them are made into a couple for the rest of the movie and Beyond. presumably for the rest of their existence whatever that might wind up being is when she's like worked up about something and he smacks her and she immediately reacts with like, well, with what can only be described as like a sexual reaction to being hit. Yeah, I know it's a puppet movie. You watch that scene and tell me how you would describe it. 
He smacks her twice and she's immediately in love with him. And, and sings a song about it. And sings a song and is flaunting all over him like, finally, finally I have found the man who will hit me. And that that's what I got from that. And it's like, I'm sorry. That was horrific. And the craziest part about it is that she is like losing it. Everything's falling apart. She's beside herself. And the like little wimpy Felix is telling her like, oh, like you need to calm down. Don't be so hysterical. hysterical. And I, I jokingly turned to you when I said hysterical. I was like, you should just slap that hysteria right out of her. And literally two seconds later, the little puppet just backhanded the other little puppet. And I'm like, he did not. And then I was like, I hope she murders him. And then she looked at him like my hero. And I was like, who, who what? What? What is this? And then he did it again. And I'm like, what? I don't understand. He's supposed to be like literally the only good guy in this because he's just like the little like human pharmacist who has allergies and like keeps sneezing and also is nonplussed by things. Like he's so kind of delightful up until then because he sees a werewolf and his first reaction is like, hey, puppy, you're so cute. He was a good boy. Go fetch the stick. And she's like, you're not freaked out by a werewolf. And he's like, no, I'm good with pets. And you're like, oh, maybe I'm going to like this little puppety guy. And then he just straight up slaps a woman in crisis. Mm -hmm. What? And wins her heart. What? Yeah. And, and to say nothing of the assault scene with the Peter Laurie zombie. I can't even. Which is also Peter Laurie. This, this is maybe my thing. But, you know, Peter Laurie has a long history as not just a, an iconic actor from classic films and particularly also horror, and then later in life with stuff he did with Corman and Vincent Price, but also became one of those actors who was probably one of the most ubiquitous celebrity impressions you were ever likely to find. I've probably experienced more Peter Laurie in my life growing up at a particular time than almost any other actor of that period because every comedian, every cartoon, every voice actor at some point or another does peter laurie even sometimes when it's not even relevant there will be a character that turns up in a cartoon with a peter laurie voice because it's just something you can do ren and ren and stimpy is a good example. yeah i mean yeah his whole character is based on a variation yeah. of that initially mm -hmm. it, it like it also when you go back to the earliest ones you hear how much it just is that right kind of like dan castellanetta started homer as walter Matthau and then slowly Tapered turned it. him into homer and and ren is like that and then um but I, I can't stand Peter Laurie. <laughs> I can't stand Peter Laurie, the persona. Because the only way you get that Peter Laurie voice is you have to turn every sentence into an hour-long chore. It takes too damn long to do. And I you gotta whine while you do it. It's so tedious and annoying. And he gets way too much screen time. And then on top of it, he's a creepy little rat of a puppet and, and uh and <laughs> technically a zombie i think technically a zombie yeah oh, i like all the little other zombies and like the bellhop thing although again i i detected what also may be a vaguely i didn't mention as we were watching it but i detected what may be a vague racist undertone in the zombies yeah I felt because all the zombies have nose rings and i'm thinking are they trying to tell us that these zombies are like like primitive natives like voodoo type zombies because that's not cool if you're a fan that grew up with it if you're someone around my age who grew up with mad monster party i'm not going to come around and judge you for still loving this because i think i probably would be now maybe i would be having these realizations now for the first time and thinking well damn this is the movie i loved as a kid but i don't have any of that connection so i can come to it now and say this isn't a debate these things that we've pointed out in Mad Monster Party are there. Right. And they're offensive. And this is of a time and it should be left there. If you still enjoy it, that's your business. But I also feel a little heartbroken that something that I thought was going to be like a nice addition from an era that I loved and people that I loved, you know, the creators, uh, turned out to be something that was really unpleasant. But I'm glad to have seen it once so that I can say I've seen it. But uh, considering all the other things Rankin and Bass did, I mean, my God, they're, 
their contributions to fantasy cinema, having done their adaptations of The Hobbit and Return of the King, they laid groundwork that we wouldn't have had the Peter Jackson movies without them. Not I mean, to mention the the resulting like Studio Ghibli well, that's, creations. That's the other thing was, that was kind of fascinating. So one of the things we only really discovered when I started delving into some of this stuff more when I was introducing you to some of the Rankin and Bass stuff right. is how all, it's a little more complicated than this. It's not quite as, as clear cut as this. But basically, when Rankin and Bass started doing their stuff, they sought out Japanese animators, studio over there, um, or multiple studios to produce the the Animagic uh, puppet work. And over the years, uh, some of the people from those studios or that studio that worked on the Rankin-Bass stuff, it eventually evolved into the people who created or moved into what became Studio Ghibli. So really, Rankin-Bass is sort of the first chapter in a long history of animation that leads to some of the the great revered classics of anime and and studio ghibli's work and like the miyazaki movies and Mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff and while we're watching this there's a sequence with a like all the characters are largely the very recognizable characters there's a wolf man there's a mummy there's hunchback a creature creature is a good creature jekyll and hyde um all the characters you'd expect but then there's one scene where Karloff gets to do a song, and which, by the way, that sequence, that song and that sequence is very clearly the first draft of Put One Foot in Front of Another from Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Arguably, it's the cutest scene in the movie. Yeah, which is like a cute little scene where he's trying to tell Felix, you know, you got to do your thing. And all of a sudden, these tiny little creatures show up. That are so cute. That are just all weird little creations that feel very much like this was the one spot where the animators were told, these don't have to be anything. Knock yourself out. Right. And they made all these weird little creatures. But the one that shows up that was really like a shock is there's this tiny little black puffball with eyes that pops up for like maybe 10 seconds, shows up and disappears and having just seen it for the first time a while ago with you, it was like, it's one of the little soot sprites from, what is it, Spirited Away, and other and things, And other too. things. They're in My Neighbor Totoro. They're in a lot yeah. of the Ghibli work. But it was definitely one of those. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, so is this the first time that ever appeared? Could there be anything that predates this? But it was definitely them. And you know, and knowing it's the same people who same have people. that through line there. Right, right. So that was kind of interesting. And the big surprise monster at the end of this was also kind of fun. Uh, there's a running gag about, you know, not inviting it to join us that we thought was going in another direction, but turned out to be including another classic monster. And that was fun. But ultimately, I can't really say much positive about it because I thought it was slow, it was tedious, the songs were uneven, the humor wasn't there. I mean, granted, humor aimed at like a... And also, who is the same death? I couldn't tell. I mean... Like, I couldn't even say for sure, like, based on the Francesca part of the storyline. Adults? It's pretty frightening to think they would have thought this is aimed at kids. Right. But also there was some weird humor there that felt more like the Phyllis, some of the Phyllis Diller jokes where you think, well, it's probably aimed at the adults more. So it's like, was it meant to be like the family where the kids look at the little characters, but the adults get some of the humor? I don't know. Oh. Not not something that I would ever uh, foresee revisiting, and I'm I'm sorry to say that. But then again, why should I be sorry? They're the ones that made the weird. <laughs> glad glad we saw it though. It definitely fills in a gap. Yeah, and it's an interesting little historical bridge between yeah. what they made before it and what would come after. But it's definitely not going to be added to our regular rotation. I feel like in the course of uh, this particular triple feature roundup for our Halloween episode. We had sort of a slight case of diminishing returns as we moved along. A little bit. Uh, Byzantium was a beautiful piece of work and a really, really great experience. And I'll, and again, though, I, I can't necessarily say I would want to revisit that a lot because it's a heavy movie. It is. But it is it is an excellent movie. Soul Survivor was fascinating and had a lot of atmosphere, but I think had more strength based on gleaning from it where it sits in the history of horror cinema and where it came from and where it's going more than what it actually is. Mm -hmm. But it was still interesting. 
And Mad Monster Party, I have to say, as a kid who grew up on Rankin and Bass and Universal movies, was a far bigger disappointment than I would have ever wanted it to be. Uh, but that's just the way it is. And again, glad I saw it. But as a roundup of things for Halloween, I think it's nice that we came out with, well, at least two of them that I think we would definitely recommend people seek out and see if they haven't. It was also a great way to fill in some gaps for me to actually find a vampire movie that like, made you feel fulfilled in the viewing experience. And also to sort of explore two films that neither of us had ever seen. And quite frankly, that comes up very infrequently for us. We're often watching a movie because one of us has seen it and the other one has it. And so the opportunity for us to experience a couple of movies together for the first time was, was pretty great. One last thing to wrap up this episode. A year ago, we included as a bonus our very brief take on the then-current Halloween sequel, Halloween Kills. This year, they wrapped up their modern, uh, I don't want to say reboot because it really isn't. I mean, nobody knows how to use the word reboot anymore anyway. But the current trilogy of films that follows mm -hmm. from the original that, and that started with Halloween 2018 and continued with Halloween Kills. Halloween Ends came out a few weeks ago, a few weeks ago already. And you, all of you know how I am about Halloween and Michael Myers. I have not been able to bring myself to watch this thing yet. And all of the reactions and all of the information I found, and you know how I'm also massive spoiler person, so I sought out... You are not spoiler-averse at all. Yeah, I've sought out a full plot and everything, all the stuff about it. I can't believe it, but it sounds like they managed to create something even more contentious, more disappointing, and more awful than Halloween Kills. And it really feels like it just cements our idea in general that they had one movie in them, and then Blumhouse got a little too excited and said, would you like to do a trilogy? And they're like, uh, yeah, because money. Except they didn't really have that. Mm -hmm. But we have not been able to bring ourselves to sit through what is almost a two-hour film that, for all reports, barely has Michael in it and is probably not emotionally satisfying in any way. I never thought the day would come where there would be sequels to Halloween that match the Rob Zombie movies for a level of garbage that I wouldn't want to sit through, but I think we've got there. And we'll, I we'll sit through it eventually. And I strongly advocate that the next move that Akkad makes is to contact Daniel Harris and do a new legacy trilogy or series where they just pick up directly from Halloween 4 ignore everything else after that and have Jamie getting out of Smith's Grove after having been put in there after killing her mother at the end of Halloween 4 because, yes, she killed her at the end of Halloween 4. She didn't just attack her like at the beginning of Halloween 5. Hand off the reins to Jamie as the new shape of evil. That's my pitch. You know Daniel Harris would be up for it. She'd be fine with it. She'll do six movies. <laughs> care. So, yeah, that's my plan. Anyway, that's that's our Halloween wrap-up. So, happy Halloween, everybody. Happy and, Halloween. Uh, we will be back soon with more werewolves. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Litovsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblitovsky, that's nblitofsky, and Arnold at Doctor the Dead. That's me. Our movies this episode were Byzantium, 2012, Soul Survivor, 1984, and Mad Monster Party, 1967. Say, you're heavier than I thought. I wanted you to know I'm no easy pickup. Ghouls in the House is an ATB publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atbpublishing.com. Go on without me, Felix. Just leave me something to read.